Baker, starting the show with something you just heard on the news, and this is an announcement coming out of the Transportation and Infrastructure Ministry when it comes to people who use wheelchairs or have other needs when it comes to accessibility and transportation. Well, joining us to talk more about this is the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure, Rob Fleming. Minister, thank you so much for being with us. No, thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, this is money that's going to be invested into getting more wheelchair-accessible taxis and making sure these vehicles stay on the roads. Can you tell us a little bit more about what was announced today? Yeah, it's a brand-new program that was enabled uh, by a law we passed in the fall a couple of months ago called uh, Bill 40. And basically, we have a new suite of programs to support the accessible taxi industry. Uh, it's called the Passenger Transportation Accessibility Program. And we released the first sort of grant stream, which is for wheelchair accessible vehicle maintenance rebates. And it recognizes that the costs of maintaining these vehicles, which have significant weights and ramps and specialized equipment to them, is very different from an ordinary taxi. And through the pandemic, when the ground transportation sector really suffered from, you know, health restrictions and a lower volume of work, we had some COVID relief grants for sure. But what we found was a lot of the uh, active licenses for uh, wheelchair accessible taxis are now inactive. Uh, we're down maybe 30, 35 percent of the fleet. And this is in all regions, but uh, in Metro Vancouver, it's a, a significant problem. So this money will help um, people who own those vehicles want to drive them, uh, get them back on the road. That's that's the idea, and then, and then we're going to move quickly on this. The grant application is opened on Friday. They'll run through February 24th, and this will allow them to hire mechanics, uh, hire uh, the types of repairs that are needed to get these vehicles back up and running. And when you say the fleet is down 30 to 35%, do you know what, mm-hmm. that, that, what that is in numbers, in how many numbers mm-hmm. of accessible cabs there are on the roads? Yeah, in terms of approved accessible uh, cabs in, in the province, we're down about 188. So, you know, we should have in excess of 600. And we're, uh, we're, we're in the low 400s now. So it, it's, it's quite significant. Um, we worked with the taxi industry and the accessibility community on designing this program. It was very collaborative. Uh, we think we've hit all the right notes on how to make it fair. It's not going to cost the taxpayer money either. It's going to be based on a per-trip fee in the ride-hailing industry are exempt from having a, an accessibility requirement in their fleets, uh, transferring that money, uh, which will then flow to the owner-operators on the taxi fleets that are required to have a certain percentage of accessible vehicles on the road. Um, I, that was going to be my next question. Was are, mm. Aren't there requirements, though, for taxi companies, because it is a regulated industry, to have a certain number of accessible cabs on the road? Because the numbers you That's said, right. that doesn't sound like the, those numbers that are would be required are actually on the roads. Yeah, well, there's, this is really a hardship situation. Um, they want to be on the road. They're just uh, short of funds to be able to afford to get them back on the road. And um, We envision a few more supports that we're going to roll out uh, in the coming months and uh, over the next year or two. Uh, one is to address the earnings disparity. This has always been an issue of those who drive accessible taxis. They can do fewer trips because typically their passengers need more assistance takes more time, uh, and therefore the number of trips they're able to do in a shift is, is, is lower than a conventional taxi. So we want to look at helping with that earning disparity. Um, we also want to help uh, with the cost of converting or purchasing new accessible taxis. There's now, a lot of them are propane. Uh, there's now available um, through Toyota and other companies hybrid vehicles, which will 
greatly assist on fuel savings and make make accessible taxis more economical to drive. So those are those are the things that are going to uh, be announced to, as a follow up to this. But this is really a fund right now to get vehicles that are should be active and on the road back on the road. Right. And, and when you talk about it being a hardship, and that makes sense, and like you said, these vehicles do require more maintenance and they are more complicated mm-hmm. than uh, a, a normal or just a, a regular vehicle. Uh, but how do you know for sure that, because for those reasons as well, that it's not as profitable and, and, and it is uh, more onerous, perhaps driving one of these taxis, how do you know that the reason the numbers are so low is be- all because of hardship? Well, we worked with the industry during the, the COVID pandemic when, when everyone was suffering uh, significant financial hardship. I mean, I think the taxi industry suffered about a 70% decline in passenger volumes. Um, and uh, we created uh, a, a small business uh, tax grant relief program that was administered by our ministry. And it was it was really a lifeline that was essential to make sure that on the other side of the pandemic, we still had a viable taxi ground transportation industry. So we learned a lot about the industry then. We've had a lot of dialogue and conversations with them. And the whole thrust of modernizing the taxi industry, which has also introduced ride hail back in 2019, was always to move forward with these types of initiatives. And when we talk about the, the ride hailing and, and that, I know one of the questions that often gets asked, asked is why they're not also subject to these rules or why they don't also have to have accessible vehicles. But I, right. I remember as well the, the announcement that, that there is that fund, there is that fee when you ride hail or when you take an Uber or a Lyft. Is that where this funding is coming from? That's where this funding is coming from. The difference between ride hail and why they don't have that requirement is they're not really a fleet. They're you know, gig economy workers driving private vehicles, sometimes part-time, sometimes full-time. So it's just a very <laughs> entirely different industry, really, um, even if it, you know, does the same line of business, getting people from A to B. Uh, it's structured uh, significantly differently. And, and that, that could change in future years, but at this point in time, um, that's really difficult uh, to administer, uh, given the model that ride-hailing um, has. Is it also a liability issue in that it is different giving somebody a ride in a private vehicle uh, compared to making sure somebody in a wheelchair is properly secured and loaded and unloaded? Yeah, there's probably some training uh, gaps there. And um, I mean, we have, I think BC has looked at other jurisdictions where they introduced ride hailing earlier than we did and had some, some significant bumps, including, uh, you know, unfunded liabilities, not properly insured. We've We've made sure that that's not the case in BC. And of course, taxi drivers are professionals who work with the accessibility community. But one of the things in leading a dialogue between the industry and the accessibility community was like, you know, the need for some more training uh, to learn uh, what life is like for somebody who is in a wheelchair and uh, and uh, kind of the courtesies and the um, ability to communicate uh, effectively what their needs are to get uh, to get their trip underway. And uh, Minister, you said so the applications opened on Friday. When are you hoping this money will actually be out and, and working and we'll be getting more of those accessible taxis on the roads? Yeah, the application period is open till February 24th. So I, I believe we've received some already and uh, the industry knows how to uh, access and complete those grant applications. So uh, we expect, uh, you know, pretty soon in the next in the next few weeks, we'll start to see uh, money flow for uh, vehicles that are currently inactive to 
um, get the work to upgrade them and get them back uh, in a good uh, state of maintenance, an excellent state of maintenance to be able to uh, function again. All right. Rob Fleming, thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. We are talking about more funding and supports to get more accessible taxis fixed and back on the roads. We were just talking with the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure, Rob Fleming, about the number of taxis that should be on the roads. As he said, it should be more than 600 and currently sitting at around, I believe the number was 188. And a lot of issues with fixing and hiring mechanics and having the money to fix those cabs. Well, we wanted to talk more about this. So joining us now is Marco Pass. Inspirational speaker, also an entrepreneur and an accessibility consultant. Marco, great to have you back on the show. Oh, thanks so much, Joe. I'm happy to be here. What are your thoughts on this funding? And it's for taxi companies. They can make an application and get some of that $3 million in funding to help with those costs and getting more accessible taxis on the roads. Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's a good start. Uh, if you might remember, back in uh, August or September of 2020, I spoke with you on your show about how travelers with disabilities were being impacted by some COVID-related measures when it came to traveling on transit. And, I mean, this is no different. We need alternative options for persons with disabilities to be able to travel throughout our community to the places they live, work, play, and learn. So I do like that Dan Coulter in the announcement, uh, who's the Minister of State Infrastructure and Transit, said that you know this is along the lines of the commitments for the Accessible British Columbia Act, and I think that that's really great. However, I don't think it should take legislation to really make this a reality. And it's in addition to having those taxis on the road, I really think that taxi operators need to be updated on their training when it comes to assisting people with disabilities. Because in my experience, as a person who uses a wheelchair, I, there's been a lack of compassion and understanding outside of, you know, not there being availability and waiting for those taxis for umpteen hours on end at this point. So, I mean, I'm really curious about it, but I'm excited that the government is putting towards um, some funding in that regard. How much of an issue or how often does that happen that you call for a taxi or you try to get an accessible cab and it is a very long waiting period? I would say almost 90% of the time. You know, even when I've called ahead and actually tried to reserve a cab and said I need it at this time uh, tomorrow, is that a, a, a possibility? I've called the next day when I'm expecting the cab and I'll say, is my vehicle on the way here? And they'll say, well, that's not really how, um, you know, the reservation works. Essentially, only if our accessible cabs are available, can we send it over to you? And and my question is, well, then what's the point of being able to reserve a taxi in advance if it's not going to meet my needs, right? I I do respect and understand that ride-hailing companies, you know, they're not necessarily required to have a certain level of accessible vehicles on the road. And by that, I mean that taxi companies, you know, do have that requirement and And that's a little bit unfair. So you have to remember that when ride hailing was first introduced in Vancouver, um, there was a little bit of an unfair playing ground there. But it was introduced because of the fact that people were upset with the lack of service that they were being provided by taxi organizations. So I'm all for healthy competition, but I do think there needs to be more of a unified approach, particularly even for ride hailing companies. If they're going to introduce their vehicles on the road, there should be some form of expectation of accessible vehicles in whatever way that looks like. And obviously those wait times, and I'm not the only one, um, they're unacceptable for anybody. 
Oh, absolutely. And uh, and it's uh, the, with the reservation system, exactly why have a reservation system for, especially for uh, an accessible cab or any cab, really, if that's if it's not, if it's still only if the cab happens to be uh, available at that time. Uh, mm-hmm. Would you, if, if ride-hailing services, Uber, Lyft, uh, ride-hailing services, if they were required or they did have, uh, say, individuals who had vehicles that could be used for wheelchair transport, would you be comfortable using that? Yeah. No, so uh, as a speaker, I travel across the country all the time. And major cities um, across North America who do utilize ride-hailing services like Uber and Lyft, some of them do have things like Uber Assist, which is a specialized training program where drivers are trained on how to be more compassionate. Um, but then there's the uh, wheelchair access vehicle program through Uber, uh, which is available only in some major cities. And I'll tell you, when I put to task some of the PR representatives at Uber and other ride-hailing companies and saying, well, why isn't this uh, introduced by default when it comes to you coming into a new city? They say, well, we do a determination at that time on whether the city we're coming into requires those types of services for persons with disabilities. And I just shake my head because being a a lower mainland resident, I say, well, why don't we require this? Because those uh, services are still, to this day, Jill, they're not available um, in the lower mainland to have... uh, either Uber Assist or Uber Wave or even through Lyft. So, I mean, I would absolutely use the services much more. I know that in the United States, in Los Angeles, they're actually incentivized in ride-hailing programs um, by actually having those companies, Uber or Lyft, pay for those vehicles or lease those vehicles for the drivers as a way of having more of the vehicles on the road. And those drivers are actually paid a little bit more from what I was told as a result of them supporting customers with disabilities. So I think that this is a fantastic step with regards to the province's commitment. But I think that we need to go a little bit further in terms of making sure we're truly meeting the needs of persons with disabilities across the province. Right, and, and that's interesting uh, to hear what's happening in that U.S. city I, because I was curious as well if there's maybe if it's uh, people are thinking that it's more difficult than it actually is to adapt a vehicle or to make a vehicle uh, accessible for a wheelchair. Yeah, I think that that could be part of it. I mean, I'm, I, honestly, the truth is, is that maintenance is an issue, right? And this is exactly why those funds are needed. Um, you know, having a lift in your vehicle and having it go up and down constantly and having moving parts is going to mean that it's need, mean that it's going to need repair. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you should be um, shying away from the opportunity of having accessible vehicles. If you have a really good vendor that's able to install a lift into your vehicle, you're actually improving the quality of life of people with disabilities across this province. So there's a real opportunity there. Plus, having a vehicle that has that, it can also be utilized for things like um, you know, carting up, uh, you know, heavy moving materials or other things like this. Keep in mind that these are not just for leisurely appointments for many people with disabilities. Oftentimes we have to go to uh, doctor's appointments and very, you know, crucial things throughout our day, just like anybody else. And so if we're sitting there waiting for a taxi for hours on end and we miss these crucial appointments, it just creates a ripple effect that obviously impacts every single person's day. So this is one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this is I just want to make sure that everyone has equal access to the same opportunities as anybody else and that they're able to build what they define as a true quality of life. All right, Marco, uh, thank you again so much for coming back on the show. It was great to chat with you today. It's always a pleasure. Thanks so much.
It's time for us to check in with Claire Newell, the founder and president of Travel Best Bets. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. An interesting day in Canadian aviation um, with an announcement of Porter Airlines touching down today in mm. Ottawa and Montreal. This was kind of big news because Porter was that airline that was really just back east flying out of Billy Bishop Airport, and they're on a mission. So today they uh, land in Ottawa and Montreal, and then later this month, they start a bunch of other flights, including Vancouver from Toronto Pearson on February 7th, Edmonton, Feb 14, Calgary, Feb 22nd, and Halifax, February 23rd. What they're, they're also saying that a whole bunch of route announcements are forthcoming. And, and their whole goal, Jill, is to build this presence in four eastern cities. So Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, and Halifax that will then connect uh, right across to the West Coast and then to destinations in the U.S., Mexico, and Caribbean. Not sure if this sounds a lot like how WestJet started, <laughs> um, but out of Calgary. Um, but this is really big news because it's another player in the game. So it means lower airfare if you've been planning to fly uh, to Toronto. Uh, their, their aircraft are, are pretty neat. They, they're two and two. So there's no middle seat. So you'll one aisle and then on each side, two seats. So um, if you haven't tried them, there's some pretty good introductory fares in the marketplace. But this is um, on a completely other note, Jill. This is one of the, the problems right now that Canada is facing because airlines like Porter and Lynx and Canada Jetlines, in addition to all the other carriers, are looking for pilots. Right. And uh, there is such a, a demand. Uh, uh, it's one of the biggest skill shortages. And I was actually reading a report that was put out by Canadian Council for Aviation and Aerospace. It was actually back in 2010. And it said that Canada, by 2025, was going to need an additional 7,300 pilots. Just to put that in perspective, right now there's an estimated 15-ish thousand pilots in the system in Canada right now. So that's scary. We're going to need a whole lot more pilots and really shortly. And it's it's actually a worldwide problem. They're estimating right now that I think the U.S. needs around 12,000 pilots as well. And it's so that's not a quick fix. It takes a long time and upwards of about a hundred grand to become a commercial pilot. So that's a barrier to a lot of people getting in the cockpit. Yeah, yeah, you don't think about it because you, I mean, you think about what a great job it is, especially if you like flying and, and doing that. But you're right, you don't often think about the obstacles and what it takes to get there. Yeah, yeah. So it's, um, it's a tough situation. And we know firsthand because we saw Sunwing that they wanted to bring in 60 temporary foreign workers to cover their pilot staffing over the holiday season. And because of that, they uh, that was denied they couldn't get their foreign pilots and as a result think of all the cancellations that they have made across this country saskatchewan flights first um and then uh winnipeg was canceled halifax sudbury ontario north bay some a few flights here in vancouver like it's just created a nightmare they built this schedule and they don't have enough pilots to actually cover it so this is going to be a problem um, especially now that there's all of these domestic new low-cost carriers in the market that are really hoping to not just be domestic carriers, they're looking to fly south. I mean, Lynx Air launched an inaugural flight last week on Friday, starting from Toronto Pearson to um, Orlando. And that was just one of many announcements that are coming from Lynx and Canada Jetlines. So 
I just, you know, wanted to put that out there. It's so off topic, Jill, but <laughs> it's such big news in my mind and I'm worried about it. Yeah. Um, one other thing that's on the list that I, I did not send to you because it just was, it just came out today. Something that anyone heading to the UK should be just, uh, just aware of. Uh, I think that the UK is going to start requiring that visitors apply for an ETA, which is called an electronic travel authorization. You have to provide personal data and pay a currently undetermined fee, but this requirement is likely coming sometime this quarter for 2023. I'm going to keep you posted on that. The fee is probably going to be in the neighborhood of five to 20 pounds, but it means like lots of places that you go to in the world. Um, my husband needed one to go to Korea on a business trip just two days ago. Um, New Zealand is one. Actually, if you're coming to Canada from anywhere uh, in Europe, you need to do it to come to Canada. But you fill it out online uh, with all sorts of contact information, biometric data, and your travel plans before you get this ETA. But it, you need to do it before you leave. It usually takes 48 to 72 hours. So I'm going to keep you posted on that. But it's not the only place in the world that I we know that Europe and the Shenzhen countries, so all of the EU and Shenzhen countries, it was supposed to be May. That's now going to be pushed back. We think it's going to be November. So this is something that in addition to your airline ticket and needing your passport, you're going to have to get. And I'm going to make sure we all are aware of it before uh, as soon as the announcements comes out for when. All right. That is something uh, definitely to keep in mind. So much happening when we're talking about yeah. travel news and travel headlines. I know. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how much time we have, but I did want to touch on something that I thought was kind of sad. Um, I mean, it's just 53 years ago, Boeing came out with their 747. You kind of know, it's the original jumbo, you know, the two level, they had that kind of upstairs was the business class kind of club in the sky. And just yesterday, they delivered their last one. I mean, they'll still be flying. um, But the last one was delivered to a New York-based aircraft leasing company called Atlas Air. I actually know someone who was at Boeing Field for that uh, that ceremony. I, I was lucky enough to put my son on one. I've flown them, and, and but my son had never, and he, when he was over doing his exchange in Finland, he did some traveling, but he actually came back uh, through Munich, Germany, on a Lufthansa flight, and they were flying that aircraft. They're not flying that aircraft on this route anymore, at least I don't think so, um, because I'm actually on a Airbus A350 to Munich coming up in May. So it's kind of sad to see it go and out of service. I love I love it when I see them, but it really revolutionized travel because the whole back of the aircraft was so much larger and it just allowed the average family in the US at that time to be able to fly um, because it doubled that plane capacity to say 350 or 400 seats, depending on how it was configured. So It was a game changer in the market, and it's interesting to see that 53 years later, it's the last one being served up. Yeah, I know so many people have such wonderful memories, like you're saying, uh, of the first time flying on a 747 and doing that. Not that the the planes we have today, the Dreamliners, and those aren't beautiful, but you're right, a lot of nostalgia connected with that plane. Yeah, tons of nostalgia, and you nailed it. You know, Boeing's 787s and 777 Dreamliners are going to replace them. They're so much more fuel efficient, and they're um, they're just the technology in them is is really amazing. But 
my family emigrated on a Ward Air 747. So I have really sentimental memories. And I know a lot of people listening may have them as well. It's fun to hear the stories and, and, and that have been going around because I've been kind of following it as people see this last one. Yeah, the last. Take shape. <laughs> the last delivery. Yeah, what uh, the end of an era for sure. Um, speaking of, well, that's uh, Boeing. And uh, we uh, have been talking a lot about the United States and their COVID requirements. Any update there? Yeah, so um, there is talk that, uh, uh, well, Joe Biden informed Congress on January 30th that U.S. national COVID emergency status is going to end on May 11th. So we know lots of the world has turned uh, to treating COVID as a, an endemic. Uh, we here in Canada opened up borders without needing requirements, but it's still been a, a sticking point for people who are heading to the U.S. via air, they still need to provide proof of vaccination status. So a lot of people waiting if they couldn't or they've chosen not to be vaccinated to be able to fly there. Um, my gut says, and a lot of people in the industry are talking, that it seems that the move will likely also result in the U.S. air arrival vaccine mandate to be dropped on that same day. So I'll keep you posted on that. May 11th is kind of the date that um, we're, we're looking at. But at the moment, if you are flying to the U.S., you must be fully vaccinated, which is the first two doses of the approved vaccines, and you have to have to show that. So a, a date I know a lot of people are watching and waiting for that official announcement. All right. And uh, we started off by talking about airlines that, that were expanding, uh, Porter Air and Lynx and all the great news there. But uh, I also saw news about WestJet and the suspension of a lot of flights and, and pulling flights back. Yeah, what we're seeing right now is that the two largest carriers, WestJet and Air Canada, are kind of kind of creating an east and west. And um, Air Canada more in the east and west really focusing on the west which is really good for us but we do want two national carriers so what was recently announced is that westjet is suspending its transatlantic service between halifax and europe for this coming summer and they're saying it's capacity constraints they're, they're not ruling it out completely they're going to look at it to see whether um, it will come back but previously they offered direct flights to london gatwick dublin Glasgow and Paris. So people out there are not going to have as much choice from Halifax. Again, I worry about the fares going up if the people, you know, are, are using Halifax as their gateway. But it'll be interesting to see what happens moving forward. I'm, it's not a balanced uh, landscape for the large carriers at the moment. And we've seen regional flights canceled. There was one in particular that uh, I can think of between a, a really well-used run between, it was an Air Canada flight between say Air Canada, I think it was Saskat Saskatoon and Calgary. It was canceled. WestJet then, you know, again, cause they are the only ones in the game, increased their, their service there. And then Flair, one of the ultra low cost carriers is going to be doing that route starting in May. And I think we're going to see a lot of that. Who's going to play where? And I think this is going to be the case right until, you know, there's a lot of financial pressure coming out of COVID. There's a lot of pilot issues, as you know, there's so many factors. And until all of these carriers kind of get their market share and kind of the dust settles, 
we're going to see a bit more of this regionalized service from our bigger carriers, unfortunately. All right. So that is good to keep in mind and uh, make sure uh, we keep keep on top of that. Uh, let's get people mm-hmm. traveling unless we've missed anything or if we want to get to the deals. Yeah, let's get to the deals. Seems like that's what people want. <laughs> Whenever yes. I don't talk about them, I get emails on it. Um, so the first deal I've got for you is a hot spot leaving in April. It's to Palm Springs, California. And I think given the deep freeze a little bit here, people are looking for some sun. This is air and four nights staying in a four and a half star hotel. For those who know, it's the Omni Rancho Las Palmas, April 2nd through until the 24th. I'm seeing packages from $6.99, and that is with Air and Four Nights Hotel, taxes of $2.92. Next, a fabulous deal, like one that I've not seen this low for a nine-night Canada and New England cruise. If you've not seen that part of the world, this is a nice way to do it. The eastern seaboard and into Canada, um, October the 19th. Couldn't be a better date to see the fall colors. It's a nine-night cruise with a 50 U.S. dollar onboard credit. So keeping in mind, this is your accommodation, your meals, your entertainment, Five ninety nine taxes of three twenty six. I haven't seen a Canada and New England that cheap um, ever. I don't think. No, I can't think. Um, next is the Riviera Maya. This is a last minute getaway because it's not. It's leaving soon, February sixteenth or eighteenth. Airfare and seven nights in a four and a half star beachfront all inclusive resort. Eleven ninety-five taxes of four eighty. Keeping in mind, this is University Reading Week, so a lot of mm-hmm. families with older kids have been looking for this date. Uh, I'm surprised it dropped, so I, I'm glad to see that. And then finally, do we have time for my last deal? Yes, please. Okay, so this one just came out. It's a long stay, which is really popular to southern Spain, the Costa del Sol region. A lot of the dates, well, actually almost all of the dates for spring sold out. So we've got a date now for fall, October the 4th or 29th of October. I think I'd go October 29th simply because the weather would be cooler. (laughs) um, However, if you're looking for it to be warmer um, in in the Costa del Sol region, October 4th would be your your go-to. But airfare, 20 nights accommodation with kitchenette. It's a four-star property. And the transfers, $17.99, taxes of $8.30. They're awful to Europe. I know. Yeah. Um, but um, a really good deal if you're looking for a long-stay getaway in October to the Costa del Sol region of Spain. All right. Some great getaways there. Claire, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you again soon. Well, this story, I think, had a lot of people on edge and a lot of people breathing a sigh of relief when it was reported that a missing capsule, a radioactive capsule, was found. It was missing on, well, it was missing in Australia. It was found on a very remote road and authorities breaking that news earlier that, yes, six days after it disappeared, this is a capsule containing some pretty highly radioactive material, six days after it disappeared, it was in fact discovered. So why is this so important and how is Canada connected to this discovery? Joining us to talk a bit more about this is Lynn McDonald, liaison scientist and manager of training at the Radiation Safety Institute of Canada. Lynn, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill, for having me here. Oh, such a, an interesting story. And before we get into the details and the Canadian connection, can you tell us a little bit about the Radiation Safety Institute of Canada and what you do? 
So um, we're a national not-for-profit, and what we do is we provide information to workers, industry, and the public about radiation in plain language. Uh, we came, uh, were formed in 1980 out of concern for the outcomes of the Elliott Lake mining disaster. And in that disaster, there were underground uranium miners that had excessive amounts of lung cancer and silicosis as a result of um, not having enough health and safety um, PPE, things like that, practices in their workplace. So now, uh, uh, over 40 years later, we have a lab for internal dissimetry for people like your underground uranium miners in Saskatchewan and other radiation-related services out there. And in Toronto, we do consulting, training, and we have a free information service, and that's for the public, for uh, workers, for uh, employers that want to know more about radiation safety. So we don't tell people what to think about the issues surrounding radiation, like we don't pick a side, but we try to provide information from reputable sources to interested people so they can make their own health and safety decisions. All right. So now that we we know kind of the the background and what the Institute is all about, when you first heard about this and when we learned that this capsule was missing in Australia, how concerning was that? So when we first heard, um, we we knew right away that this would be of interest to people in Canada, even though it's happening quite a ways away. Um, So for, you know, because of the fact that it is not something that can be weaponized, right, it it wasn't of that type of concern, Um, but it's just... I think that we felt that we need to be there to provide information in case people had questions. And the the main concern would be for anybody that might come into contact with it for a period of time, that there would be health risks. So here in Canada, it wouldn't have been health risk for Canadians, uh, the radiation detectors and such at airports and, and, and things like that that would pick up if it was going to be uh, flown out of the country. So, But for somebody that might live in Australia, might have picked it up, um, they, we have no senses to detect the beta and gamma radiation, which would be emitted by this capsule. So if someone was there and they saw it and they thought it was interesting and put it into their pocket for a period of time, they wouldn't even be aware that it was dangerous. So we thought it was an opportunity to have a conversation um, with the public and let people know about these, the nature of this and um, what protections are here in Canada Um, Because these nuclear gauges are in use in Canada, and people may not be aware of that. And in this case, too, so so somebody might have picked it up and, and like you said, wouldn't have known uh, being exposed to that would be dangerous. Uh, the capsule itself, though, was being, was being used, I think it was a, a Rio Tinto mining site. So the, the, no, there's nothing nefarious, is there, about, about what it is and being used? It's just unfortunate that it fell off the truck? Yes, yeah. So nuclear gauges are um, instruments that are used uh, quite frequently uh, in in industrial situations where they want to be able to look at or analyze what's happening, for example, inside a pipe or inside a big hopper, level gauges, that type of thing, uh, flow rates in pipes. Uh, they're also used, those are, would tend to be fixed nuclear gauges that just kind of sit there and analyze what's going on. And then there are portable nuclear gauges that are used um, for things like looking at the compaction of soil at an industrial site or once asphalt is put down to make sure that the quality is good. So the advantage of using the nuclear gauges is that the gamma radiation that is put out works the same way as x-rays. 
but you don't need to have the high voltage power supplies or the capacitors put into the system to be able to produce those because the source produces those gamma rays um, through radioactivity rather than through electricity. So, um, so they're very commonly used, but they're very heavily regulated as well. So um, it, people can't just, you know, you can't just go out and buy them. The Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission in Canada that they regulate the use of these and other nuclear sources, and people have to apply for a license and things like that. But they do exist here in Canada, and it would be, you know, they, like you said, there's nothing nefarious about it, but they are here, and um, it, it's it's an opportunity for us to think about how important it is to help proper health and safety programs within workplaces that do have these these devices. Right. And and was your institute then, was the, the Radiation Safety Institute of Canada involved at all in the search, or, or did you play a role in that? No, we were not directly involved with the disappearance or the search, um, but because our mandates provide information to Canadians about issues of radiation protection, we were making comment about it so people know to contact our free information service if they have questions or concerns. Okay. Uh, did you uh, did you find it odd kind of how it was found or, or what went through your, your mind as far as relief or reaction when you heard that this capsule was located and found? So my first thing is that, um, like, as the Institute, we're very relieved that it was found. Um, I grew up in a rural area of Canada. I don't know if you can pick up the accent um, to know which area, but I could easily imagine to just walking down the road kind of thing as a child and seeing something like that and picking it up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it might be very unlikely considering that area of Australia and how sparsely populated it is, and it's a huge area. It was 1,400 kilometers, I think, they were searching. So, you know, and it, it might have fell off the road, that type of thing. But in terms of finding it, while it may be difficult to see, because it gives off gamma radiation and gamma spreads out in all directions, um, that with radiation detection instruments that they would if if it was within a reasonable distance they would be able to pick that up as long as the signature was higher than background radiation so i from what i've read that they had radiation detection instruments and they were driving down sections of the road so um, while it was difficult to see that instruments were able to pick those things up all right. And you, you kind of touched on this as far as safety protocols and making sure that because we do have these in Canada as well, that we have those protocols in place. Or does this tell us more about the need or remind us more about the need of, of the importance of being careful with this material? Yeah, I think it's very important. And, and we feel at the institution that uh, at the Institute um, that organizations and people that work with nuclear substance don't become complacent with health and safety. And because there's always competing needs for time and money, right? And these incidents, um, because of all the regulations and requirements that are in place, these incidents happen infrequently. So it might be tempting to remove some of your practices or or push for less regulation. Um, But those things are in place to keep the people environment safe. So we really wanted to take the opportunity to remind people that all that time uh, they spend building the radiation protection program and providing training and assessment, having their internal inspections, keeping track of how they're meeting all those regulatory requirements, that those are important to to prevent incidents like this. So it it is time-consuming, but looking at the infrequency, like how often it 
how many days go by that nothing happens like this. Um, It's obviously helping, and we wouldn't want to see people um, get complacent because these things can have serious health effects. All right. Well, it's a very good news that it was found and really interesting to find out more about what the Institute in Canada does. I, before I let you go, though, because you mentioned that we might be able to know what part of, uh, uh, part of Canada you're from because of the accent. I'm horrible at that. But now, of course, I'm intrigued. I'm going to guess <laughs> somewhere in Atlantic Canada. Yes, I'm from Prince Island originally, so good for you. <laughs> oh, phew, that one's that was a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure there. <laughs> All right. In, in Toronto now, but um, you don't lose it when you've been there uh, for, for 35 years originally. So. Oh, very, very true. Lynn, thank you so much for joining us and for telling us more about this. I so appreciate your time today. Yes, and just let your listeners know, like if they look us up and they do have further questions, they can just send us an email or give us a call and uh, we can give them more information. All right, sounds good. Lynn, thank you again so much. Thank you then. Bye. A statement put out by Fortis BC says because of an issue with one of its transmission lines, it is asking people in the lower mainland as well as Vancouver Island to reduce their use of gas. The company is saying it is critical customers on the south coast conserve gas and also says that it's working to bring additional supplies online. So joining us to talk more about this is Sean Beardow, Manager of Corporate Communications at Fortis BC. Sean, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Bill. Good to talk to you. Uh, This uh, alert was put out, or this message was put out, asking people to conserve gas uh, for uh, until further notice. What is the issue with the transmission line? Uh, Yeah. So what we have right now is a is a supply disruption from the the West Coast Energy transmission line. Uh, That's really the transmission line that we get the the bulk of our natural gas supply from. Uh, Given that we receive so much gas from this line. Uh, any disruption of supply from that really dep- really affects the amount of supply that we have for our customers. Uh, so with reduced supply from West Coast, uh, we're taking measures to insert, ensure that we can maintain stable service for all of our customers. And what caused the reduced supply or what caused the issue? Uh, our understanding is that following a, a routine inspection, uh, West Coast Energy uh, shut in a section of the of their T South transmission line. Um, so when they shut in that section, it obviously reduced some of the supply we were able to take from that line, uh, and then affecting our own gas supply. Okay. And, and do you know what it was though that prompted them to shut down part of that line? Uh, I wouldn't want to speak on behalf of of West Coast Energy. So kind of details on on kind of the actions they're taking and, and their decision making processes. Is probably best served for them. I wouldn't want to speak for them. Sure. Is it rare to have something like this happen? Uh, you know, there there always can be uh, minor disruptions in the system. Uh, that's really why uh, we've taken a lot of effort to build a very resilient system. Um, you know, in whenever there is any sort of supply disruption or impacts to the amount of gas, uh, there's a number of measures we can take. Uh, you know, we have contracts with certain customers that are, are termed as interruptible. So uh, it's within their contract that we can interrupt their gas service for a period of time uh, when needs be, you know, in times of high demand or supply shortage. Um, there's also our LNG plants. 
um, which offer a, a huge benefit in times like this because it gives us extra resource to draw from uh, so we can keep the this, this system stable, which is ultimately our main goal. Right. Okay. Uh, it sounds, it, it, when you use a word like critical, though, which is what it says in the release, it says it's critical that Fortis BC gas customers in the lower mainland of Vancouver Island conserve gas. That does make it seem like it's quite serious. You know, I, I would say it, 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 is, it is important um, for those conservation measures uh, to be undertaken. Uh, we know that customer conservation uh, can help us a huge amount. Uh, really, though, we're doing this out of an abundance of caution, if anything else. Um, you know, right now, our, our, our overall supply is, uh, is good, and we've got, um, we've got better weather on the horizon, which is always nice and certainly helps us out. Um, but we want to make sure that we're acting with an abundance of caution until we hear from West Coast Energy that that pipeline is uh, back up to full capacity and running. Okay. And so what are you asking customers to do as far as how it is cold here? We're having some cold weather and it's cold and wet. A lot of people heat their homes with natural gas. So what are you asking people to do or, or to how to conserve? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, the, the, the two biggest ones, honestly, uh, is, uh, is turning down your thermostat uh, a couple of ticks. Uh, and being very conscious of your use of hot water. Um, water heating and space heating are really two of the big energy, um, energy uses in the household. Um, you know, so simple things like when you're going to bed, uh, turn down your house's thermostat, maybe an extra couple of degrees in, overnight. Uh, when you wake up in the morning, maybe don't pop it right up to 20, but pop it at 18 or 19. Um, you know, we have, uh, if we have a large group of customers doing this, it can really make a big impact for us. Do you have any idea how long the request will be in then for people to do this? Uh, yeah, like I said, it's, um, you know, we are, we are acting with an abundance of caution until we really uh, have a sense from West Coast Energy of when that pipeline is going to be back to full production. Uh, so, you know, we're awaiting more information. We'll obviously... Uh, share more information as we get it with British Columbians and our customers. Uh, and, uh, and we'll, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a day-by-day thing at the moment. Right. And I think you mentioned this as well, but looking as well for additional supplies. So is it, is Fortis BC then looking for additional supplies uh, while they're waiting or while you're waiting for West Coast Energy to, to give you that update? And, and would that be enough that, that would make up the difference? Yeah, so there's a lot of different levers we can pull in, uh, in an instance like this. Uh, like I mentioned, our LNG facilities are a huge boon to us. Um, that is a, 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 great, a great source of stored energy for us. Um, we've also been able to acquire uh, volumes of gas from, uh, from neighboring utilities uh, down across the United States border. Uh, so these are, all different, these are all different things we've been able to do to ensure that we can keep a stable system for our customers. And you mentioned, too, this is out of an abundance of caution. If for some reason people don't get this message or don't do anything to conserve nat- uh, natural gas, is there a potential that we could run out? Uh, we're not at that point yet. Um, like I said, it's, you know, it's, Small measures being taken taken now um, just put us in a healthier situation overall. Uh, you know, kind of a, an ounce of prevention equals a pound of cure. Um, so certainly the uh, just small actions we can take now just put us in a better situation overall, make us a little more 
uh, resilient because while things do look good now, uh, we want to make sure that uh, we don't leave anything to chance. All right. Sean Beardow, thank you so much for joining us and for updating us on this today. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Joe. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Have you ever thought about fostering a dog, opening up your home, even for just a short time, to help that dog find their forever home? Well, if so, the SBCA is looking for you. Adrian McBride joins us now, Senior Director of Community Animal Services for the BC SPCA. Adrian, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a great topic to talk about. It sure is, and I understand that there's a shortage of dog fosters, so what's happening with that? Yeah, I think, you know, some of that is coming out of the pandemic. People's lives have changed a little bit, and, you know, where they might have had time to foster or thought about fostering, we've moved on and think about their, you know, summer summer vacations and and tropical vacations this winter. Um, But that doesn't mean that the need isn't still there for us to have foster homes for dogs to go to. And and so not as many people doing that. And, and like you said, for ver- various reasons. So what are you looking for, though, in somebody in if somebody is considering that? What do you kind of need to bring to the table to be a foster? Yeah, absolutely. Really, what we're looking for is a space for a dog to spend some time temporarily. The SBCA will provide all of the, the supplies, the medical care, the food, uh, training and support that the foster needs. And we're just looking for some you know, time commitment and a comfy couch for a dog to hang out on for a few weeks. Um, and that's sometimes while they recover from a medical care, sometimes just to give them a bit of time to decompress or for us to get to know them better before we find them that forever loving home. And I'm guessing this varies depending on the animal and the situation, but is there a general kind of time frame or how long a foster is usually with a foster family? Yeah, it's a great question. It really does depend on the dog. So sometimes it might be, you know, two weeks while they run through a course of antibiotics. uh, And other times it might be 10 weeks if you're willing to take on, you know, a mom and her puppies. So it really depends on the situation. But what's great about fostering is that it can be the commitment that you want it to be. So having that conversation with your local SPCA branch to say, I've got, you know, the next three weeks available. What um, what can I help you with is a great way to to start that conversation. And what about issues if somebody's concerned that well, there's a dog that's that's looking for a (laughs) no foster needed there. What about it if someone's concerned, though, that, well, I'll, I'll use barking as an example. Say you live yeah. in a, a multi-home situation, a strata or something, and you're worried. You're worried because you don't really know the dog all that well, that maybe the dog will bark or chew or have behavioral issues. Yeah, and I think that's actually one of the great things about foster is in some ways it's good. It's an opportunity to see what kind of dog might fit into your lifestyle. So, you know, um, finding out about barking or things like that is, a, you know, it's often discovered through the foster process. And if it's not working out, you know, the dog can come back to the animal center at any time. Um, but, you know, sometimes it does work out. And that dog that you heard barking started out in my life as a foster. So sometimes uh, <laughs> it works out really well. Um, and, and so, but it is, I think, nice for people who are not sure, do I want a big dog or a little dog? Do I want a really high energy dog or a couch potato? Uh, to have a you know, bit of an opportunity to, to try out different types of dogs and see what might be the best fit for them. No, absolutely. I, isn't that what we call the failed fosters? I like to say foster win. <laughs> yes. I mean, you're, you're, <laughs> you get the best prize. 
case, right? <laughs> That's true. I've always felt, you know, when, when we call it failed foster, it's just, it, 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 there's no failure really in there, no. but failing in a good way, I suppose, yeah. when that happens. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Th- that kind of answers my question. If somebody is fostering and they absolutely fall in love with the dog, how how difficult is it or, or what happens in that case and that do they generally get to keep the dogs? Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, that's it's sometimes the easiest adoption uh, if the foster says, hey, this is working out and I think they're going to stay. Um, then, you know, we don't have to have a long adoption conversation about the you know behaviors of the pet that they're adopting because they know them better than we do. So, yeah, absolutely. We would work with our fosters um, to, to adopt the animal and, you know, cross our fingers that they might be willing to still continue fostering uh, another dog or cat along the way. And what about questions about, say, if it's a family or some, or a single person or a couple, um, if they don't have a yard, what if they have maybe already have another dog in the house or children, those kinds of things? Yeah, so what we need is a variety of types of foster homes. Um, so oftentimes people will think, oh, I can't foster because I don't have a yard. But not every dog enjoys going out on a yard and they would much more, you know, much be much better to be taken out on a leash on a regular basis. So I think, you know, have that conversation with the animal center nearest you to see what type of fosters they need because we really do need all kinds. Um, you know, I foster and I have two dogs, two cats, and two kids, uh, and we offer a great opportunity for puppies to get lots of socialization in my foster home, um, but we wouldn't be able to foster a dog that doesn't get along with, um, you know, dogs and kids and cats. So, um, But we need all those different types of foster homes because we do have so many different types of dogs that come into our care. And right now then, also, your house sounds very, very busy, so I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that it was just a bit of dog barking that we could hear in the background. Um, is, it, is it mainly the need for dog fosters right now? Do you also do cat fosters or other animals, or are we mainly talking about dogs? Yeah, so right now we're hoping to build up our dog foster, but we always need fosters for all animals. Um, and so, you know, everything from, from guinea pigs and hamsters all the way up to, to big dogs uh, and everything in between, we're absolutely always looking for fosters. Shortly it will be kitten season uh, and we'll have lots of mom cats and their kittens in care that would be much uh, better off in foster homes. So absolutely any type of animal uh, we would be happy to place into a foster home. All right. What should someone do if maybe they've been thinking about doing this or they're listening to this and thinking, hey, I could uh, perhaps do this and learn more about this. What's the first step for somebody to, to become a foster? Yeah, a couple different options. You can visit your local uh, SPCA centre and talk to them about foster opportunities uh, or certainly through our website, um, you can contact our organisation and apply to be a foster home. All right. Well, I, hopefully uh, more people will sign up or you'll be able to get uh, more of those fosters and get those dogs onto their forever homes. Adrian, thank you so much for joining us and telling us more about this today. Perfect. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.